Chapter 4 of Paul says, verse 18, so we, or verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that out, far outweighs them all. So it says this light and this momentary affliction. So, but in chapter 1, he says this, verse 8. We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He goes on and says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So, so, so he, he says, we felt like we'd received the sentence of death, we despaired of life itself, and then he says in chapter 4, verse 17, that this, this is a light and momentary affliction. Well, that's a huge difference. He said, we walked under the sentence of death. We don't know the exact historical situation that Paul's speaking of. It could have been a situation where his life was threatened in Ephesus. He says later in this book, he says, five times I've been beat with the whip, 40 stripes minus one, which brings you to the very point of death. He says, three times I've been beaten with rods. One time I've been stoned and left for dead. Three times I've been shipwrecked. So he could be speaking of numerous historical situations where Paul felt the sentence of death over his head. Now, when we think about this passage, there are brothers and sisters in Nigeria today or Iran or North Korea or parts of even Cuba where they're threatened, physically threatened. They're in prison or they're put to death because of their faith in Jesus, because they want to count out of the state. We in this land, with our wonderful religious liberties, probably will never experience the persecution of death, but we still hit walls. We still hit grave disappointments. We still hit very difficult periods. And my question is, how, how does Paul go from sentence of death, despaired of our lives, to saying, hey, this is just a light and momentary affliction that is achieving for us a far greater glory. And I'm going to show you three points where Paul got, how Paul got there. And I want to suggest to you that, that this is a cyclical pattern in our lives. Throughout our life in a less than perfect world, we will hit walls of despair, discouragement, pain, disease, heartache. We'll just hit them. And it's cyclical. And, and as soon as we hit the wall, we need to go to this three-point pattern. Or as soon as we experience heartache or, 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 or physical hurt or pain, go this cyclical pattern I'm going to show you. And I see, I, I, I read this book and I say, God, I, I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. I don't want to just survive and then die and go to heaven. I, I, want, to, I want to thrive under your hand. I want to be used of you. I, I want to experience the fullness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to have the experience that Paul has when he says that these are light and momentary afflictions. I want to experience what the psalmist says in Psalm 92 when he says, but, but I am like a, 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 a fruit-bearing olive tree planted in the courts of the Lord, bearing fruit even in old age. And I proclaim the goodness of the Lord. I want that. Or I, want, I, I read what Paul says in chapter 12, and I just go, wow. Paul says, I had a thorn in the flesh, a physical problem. 
And I pled with God three times, God, please take it away. Abba, Father, take it away. But God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I read that and I go, wow. Wow. That's not just surviving. That is thriving under the hand of God. That, that, that is, that's the glory. And I want that for us. So here's the three points. Point number one, he says in, in verse 10, this happened to me so that but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He said, he's, he's, this happened so that I wouldn't rely on myself, but that I would rely on the God who has delivered, who is delivering, and who will deliver me. So point number one, when we hit a wall, you say to ourselves, this is to show me that my strength is not in myself, but it's in the living God, whose name is Jesus. I quoted C.S. Lewis three weeks ago in a book called The Problem of Pain, when Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Our pain and God speaking to us, shouting to us, is his megaphone to rouse a deaf in a dying world. So you, you hit walls, you hit suffering, you hurt, hit difficult things, and, and, and you run to the God who is. You don't rely on yourself, you rely upon the Lord. You cry out, you are my deliverer. I was reading Lamentations this week. Lamentations is a book in the Old Testament. It's the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. And he was a prophet when the southern kingdom fell in the Babylonian captivity and Jerusalem was, was laid bare and it was leveled. The temple was destroyed. It was a horrible time. And Jeremiah was from a small tribe in an agricultural community from probably a despised priestly family. And he, from this small tribe, priestly family, went to the, the metropolitan area of Jerusalem and he spoke to the ruling elites and the high priestly caste system. And this was his message. God said, Jeremiah, do not marry because your life is going to be hard. Jeremiah, preach, but nobody's going to listen to you. And his whole ministry, we think two people heeded his advice. Two people in 40-some years. It was hard. His message was, do not resist the Babylonians when they come to capture you because the Babylonians are, are, are God's instrument of judgment upon you. Surrender to them. Go into captivity, God will bring you back. But they said, no way. They put him in a well, they put him in prison, they threatened his life, they said, we're going to kill you, and they resisted. And there was a prolonged warfare, the Babylonians came in, they took people captive, some fled to Egypt, the city was leveled. And so Jeremiah is writing the book of Lamentations in the rubble of the holy city. We've never experienced this. The city he loved has been laid waste. 
The city he loved is barren. There's no one there to speak of. And so he writes the book of Lamentations. And it's not a book you'll hear read at many weddings. It's a tough book. But he says in chapter 3, he starts off by saying, verse 1, I am a man who's been, who has seen affliction under the rod of the wrath of God. Verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. Verse 7, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Verse 10, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He says, I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. I I feel walled up with no hope. I feel as if God took an arrow from his quiver and pierced my kidneys. I am the laughingstock of everyone around me. They mock me. They taunt me. And yet in the midst of this, he utters some of the most precious words in the Bible. Listen. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord Jehovah is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And I read that and I go, Jeremiah, you're sitting in the rubble with no one listening to you. Forty years of seeming futility, and yet you trumpet the faithfulness of God. How much more should we, brothers and sisters who are trusting in Christ, who sit on this side of the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in Messiah King, whose name is Jesus, who live on this side of the outpoured Holy Spirit and on the giving of the Word of God, how much more should we say, I am taught by my hard afflictions and my difficulties not to trust in myself, but to trust on the God who never, ever fails. That was step number one. Do you taste the goodness of the God who doesn't fail? There's a little book called Power, Power Evangelism for the Powerless by a guy named C. John Miller who taught at Westminster. It is a wonderful book. And he talks about men and women who are used of God to, to take the gospel out, to impact their culture, and to speak Christ. And he said this, he, he, said, he said, Jesus acted in and through them not because they were powerful persons, but because they were empty vessels who knew they desperately needed the daily grace of Christ. They didn't rely upon themselves. They relied upon the Lord. On the other hand, I was reading this week about the country of Uzbekistan. 31 million people. A landlocked country. Former Soviet, part of the former Soviet Union. And there's a man named there uh, whose last name is Karamova. And he's been the leader of the country for almost 30 years. And he has a daughter named Guyana Karanova. Karamova, who's supposedly the heir apparent. She's 41. 
And this article said that she is under investigation by the Swiss and French police for money laundering. The UN has revoked her diplomatic status and her immunity from arrest. And there was a memo from the State Department in 2005 that was leaked recently, that wasn't supposed to be leaked, that said she is a modern-day robber baron and the most hated person in all of Uzbekistan, 31 million people. That's Miss Karamova. And yet you go to her website, and this is what she says about herself. She says, I am a woman who's a, a vastly talented poet. I'm a gifted mezzo-soprano, whatever that is, a woman who sings, I guess. And I am an exquisite Uzbek beauty. Young men. Some young men. If you're pursuing a young woman and she says to you, you know, I am an outstanding poet. I have an incredible voice, soprano, and I'm an exquisite South Carolina beauty. Run. <laughs> Run. Break your legs. Run. You know, but really, our culture is a lot like that. We're always trying to sell ourselves. Listen, the apostle, listen to what Paul says. In, in this book, he, he says, he says, chapter 2, he says, to, to one group, we smell like death. To the other group, we smell like life. Who is sufficient for these things? Question mark. For we are not like so many who peddle the word of God, but we, as men of sincerity, are commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Jesus. Our sufficiency comes from Christ. Later in chapter 3, he says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's it. Don't rely on yourself, you rely on the Lord. Lord, I, I really, I, I can't pull this off unless you, by your power, anoint me. I, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the meek who are approachable. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted but you, just, you touch each rung coming down the ladder, poor in spirit, then you mourn, then you're meek. You don't rely upon yourself, you rely up, upon the Lord. Point number two in this cyclical pattern is verse 11, where he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing bestowed or the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So point number two in this cycle is, is you have people who are praying for you. Now, I don't understand prayer. But the Bible says that prayer is essentially important. The, the Bible says when people pray for you in the name of the mediator, Jesus, that power is unleashed in your life. Just, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Once again, he says, you also must help us. Or give us aid by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted or the grace granted us through the prayers of many. Thanks be to God for people who pray. So my, my question, are you in a community, 
a small group where people pray for you. They pray for you. God, give them grace. God, grant them your power. God, give them strength to go strong. I just finished a book about John Calvin. Calvin died in 1564. Most modern biography by a guy named Gordon. It's pretty good. But the thing that struck me that I've really that encouraged me is he quotes the letters of Calvin. And I mean, there's seven letters, excuse me, seven volumes of Calvin's letters. Seven. You know, we have five emails. But Calvin loved community. He longed for community with other men and women. He loved community with different men all over Europe who were preaching the gospel of grace. And these letters just poured back and forth and back and forth. And he was just a man. He, he loved, I just went, I just thought, Calvin loved community. And yet here's a man who was, there's a guy named Karl Barth, who was a famous theologian in the last century. And he said, Every other theologian I've studied, something like this, every other theologian is a river. Calvin is the ocean. He's just brilliant. So here's a brilliant, gifted man who longed for community, who longed for the prayers of God's people. The, the church, right, rightfully so, we talk about putting on the armor of a Christian warrior in Ephesians 6. And Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this dark world. And he says, put on, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Put on the, the belt of truth. Have your feet shod with the gospel, the preparation of peace. Wherever you go, take the gospel of peace with you. And put on the breastplate of what? Righteousness. And take up the shield of what? Faith. And put on the helmet of the hope of what? salvation and take up the sword of the spirit that's the word of god and you're ready to go right no no almost this is what he says ephesians 6 he says praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of God's people, or the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. And Paul says, put on the full armor but each piece put on with prayer. And as you go, you pray. And you pray for everybody. And people pray for you. And pray for me that I would open my mouth and speak the gospel clearly and boldly as an ambassador in chains. And I just ask, are people praying for you? Do you have a group that prays for you? That you'd be strong in the Lord? That you'd go forward in faith? That you'd make an impact on the generations to come? You'd represent the name of Christ well. Point number three. We go now to chapter four. He says this. Light and momentary afflictions, achieving an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, so you know, you don't rely on yourself. You have a community of prayer. 
and you look upon the things that are unseen because those things are eternal. When I was in seminary, I was sitting in New Testament class one day, and the professor made a statement I thought about frequently. His name was Dr. Corley. And I, I don't know what we're talking about, but he stopped and he said, he said, men and women, he said, to really understand the New Testament, you must pray for an imagination that is somewhat like the imagination of J.R.R. Tolkien. You've got to get it. Because we're surrounded by a monolithic culture. I'm saying this now. That, that never speaks of glory. There's a man named Philip of Macedon. He died in 323 B.C. He was the daddy of Alexander the Great. And Philip of Macedon, of Macedon had a servant. And the servant's job every day was this, to walk in the presence of the king sometime during the day, maybe a sunrise, and say this, Remember, O king, one day you will die. See you tomorrow. Watch out. He was just the servant of death. Remember, you'll die. Conversely, there's a guy named Louis XIV, the sun king, the king of France for 72 years, built the palace of Versailles, lived in incredible, extravagant, gross opulence. Louis banned in his presence the word death or dying. He was surrounded by sycophants all the time that would pay money to see him eat and do other things that are unspeakable, really. It's weird. But you can never say death or dying in his presence or you'd be punished. And listen, we are much more like Louis XIV than Philip. We don't talk about death. We don't think about death. I mean, but listen, listen, let me, let me be the servant. Let me be the servant to you that the servant was to Philip. You're going to die. You're going to die. I was with my wife recently. We were sitting outside in a beautiful place, and it just happened that in about a 10-minute segment, the vast majority of people that walked by were older, and I said, Sarah, there's not a person that's walked by in the last 10 minutes that won't be dead in 20 years. It's true. So, so when, when you live with this sense of of, you look upon the things that are eternal because, and they're unseen and there's eternal glory that awaits. It gives many people, not all people, many people a sobriety and an orderliness to life. True story. A Texas rodeo clown named Casey Wagner happened a couple of months ago. He was in, on a field in Texas, probably one tree within 10 acres. And a huge rainstorm came through, and he went running under this big tree. And as he stood there trying to not get too wet from the elements, a storm rolled in, a thunderstorm rolled in, and lightning came down and struck him and knocked him down. And he was dazed, and he got up, and while he was getting up, lightning hit him again, twice. He survived, obviously, and went to the hospital, a newspaper report, carried a report on him, and they said, well, well, why did you think? He said, well, the second time I got hit, I thought, I need to start going back to church. <laughs> True story. Now, I, I thought then, I thought, you know, death, death is very sobering. But listen to me, listen to me. There are some people who when death approaches or they become more brazen because their hearts are hardened. And I would plead with you, if you're not a Christ follower, do not harden your heart to the gospel of grace. 
And I would say to all of us who are Christ followers, I mean, keep a tender heart. I remember reading years ago so a, a novel by, or excuse me, a historical book by a guy named Beaver, who's a British historian named Berlin, 1945. It's an astounding story about the fall of Berlin and the horrible destruction and, and how Hitler, uh, the waning hours of the Third Reich, killed himself after he shot his bride of just a few days. And after that happened, Heinrich Himmler poisoned all of his children and his wife and took his own life. And, and a general came to some of the underlings, some of the secretaries, the stenographers, and said, the Third Reich is no more. The Russians, are, the Soviets are coming. You should flee to the West. Flee to the Americans, flee to the British. Do not be here when the Soviets arrive. And so one woman who was a stenographer walked up through the cavern of the, the bunker where Hitler was, and she said there were doors open, and inside those rooms were men and women doing unspeakable sexual acts with one another. The Third Reich has fallen. Our hope is gone. The Soviets are coming. They will either kill us or put us in prison for a long time. There was no sense of seeking God. And then last year I read a book entitled Fever Season. It was about the yellow fever in Memphis, Tennessee in 1878. 1878, Memphis is a city of 50,000. The fever comes in, 30,000 leave, 20,000 stay, 5,000 died. We didn't know until 1901, Walter Reed, okay, Walter Reed in the hospital, Walter Reed, an army physician and his staff discovered that yellow fever was carried by mosquitoes. We didn't know that until 1901. These people stayed, and that 20,000 stayed, 5,000 died. They were, dealing, they were digging huge trenches and just throwing bodies in every day. They talked about how people responded. They talked about the bravery of certain people and people that risked their life to care for people, and they forfeited their life. And one doctor gave this report. He said, he said something happened that I could not understand, and that is among the nurses. When the yellow fever epidemic was raging, there is nothing that should have more called them to the rapidity of death and the shortness of life. And yet, some of these nurses became embroiled in and involved in lewd acts of sexuality. He said, it took a, quote, propensity deliberately nursed, close quote, to stage acts of sex in the midst of the yellow fever epidemic. He couldn't believe it. And I, I just thought, you know, there, there's a passage in Ephesians 4 that says, they have hardened their hearts and they're beyond feeling. And then I thought about, about Hebrews chapter 3 in the New Testament, where Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion when they tested the Lord in the wilderness. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And I say to you, don't harden your hearts. If you're not a Christ follower, run to the cross. Don't harden your hearts. Because there seems to be a point in Scripture where, where, where people cross a line and they're just dead. They're dead to appeals. They're, they're dead. Don't, don't, don't do that. So, so it should give us a, a sober orderliness to our life. Secondly, it should help us grow, oh, gracefully. Um, this woman's named Greta Garbo. Uh, obviously, an absolutely beautiful woman. At the age of 35, she made what was going to be, we didn't know it then, this was, I think, the 1920s or so, her last movie in the 30s. 
And from that point forward, for almost 50 years, she went into total seclusion. Had no friends, spurned all suitors, never married, never developed friendships. Uh, lived in isolation in a penthouse. She had a lot of money. She would scurry out with a scarf and sunglasses and hat on and scurry back in. And, and people say she could not handle, they thought, she could not handle the horror of growing old. She just couldn't handle it. She, she couldn't handle getting old. Getting wrinkles, crow's feet, sagging, hurting. I think of Remember the name Ponce de Leon from history? Ponce de Leon came over here in the second voyage of Christopher Columbus. Ended up coming back. He heard rumors of a fountain of youth in Florida. So he went over to Florida looking for a fountain of youth. Just kind of the reverse happened. You go to Florida today, it's all old people. But, you know, never found the fountain of youth. It was a, it was a fool's errand. You're going to get old. The body's going to waste away. Heard about this recently. New phenomena, juicing. You can go to stores and buy salad in a bottle. The juice on the left costs 10 bucks. One lady that was interviewed, a fitness instructor, age 31, who works with teenage girls, said, I drink five of these a week. So I'd, I'd, I'd rather go without a... Uh, manicure than to go without my juice. 50 bucks a week. And there's nothing wrong with fitness, but there comes a point where you cross the line and you end up trying to deny the inevitable with tummy tucks and liposuction and Botox intravenously fed into your body and implants and hair plugs and whatever else you do. See, the glory of the believer is, we say, the best is yet to be. And look at this real quickly. Our time is gone, but let me do this. Chapter 5 says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, or we sigh. See, Charlie Brown. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So he says twice, we groan. Now let me tell you this, the, the groaning, I think, the groaning here is not the groaning of despair. It's the groaning of longing. He says later, creation groans. See, and this is what he's saying, is that C.S. Lewis said this is so, so good. He said, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And he said, the new heaven and the new earth compared to this existence is com like comparing a coal to the diamond. But I love that. Use that. Don't, don't have to give Lewis credit. Just use it. Okay? Coal to the diamond. Coal to the diamond. In, in other words... That's why we groan and that's why we sigh. So, if, if, you're, if you're with a friend and you're eating a succulent, glorious meal and say something like this, boy, this is good, but can you imagine what the wedding feast of the Lamb is going to be like? Taste bud explosion. 
Or you sit a beautiful beach scenery or mountains and it's just glorious and you just, you can't even breathe. It's so beautiful. And you say to your friend or say to yourself, I, this is beautiful, but I am sighing because the new heavens and the new earth are going to be unbelievable. Or resurrection bodies. You see LeBron do a tomahawk slam and every muscle in his right arm is defined and beautiful. It is beautiful. And you say, you know, he is a man. But imagine what resurrection bodies will be like. Wow. See, I need people around me who sigh in expectation. It's like, I love being there when my kids were born. Man, it was fun for me. <laughs> but you know, you, you, you meet a, a couple and she's eight weeks, she's eight months and two weeks pregnant. And you can see the foot, you know, kicking field goals. And the parents are just, I mean, this is so cool. This, just, this is wonderful. But that's nothing compared to the joy of two weeks later when you hold that baby just like this. So these parents are sighing for the birth. I need to do that more. It'll make me more heavenly minded. It'll make me more loving of people. It'll make me more missions minded. It'll make me more forgiving, more compassionate. Do you have that hope? So here's the cycle. You hit a wall. I don't rely on myself, Lord, I rely on you. My sufficiency is from you. You have a praying community who cares for you and walks with you. And thirdly, you don't fix your eyes on what is seen, you look at what is unseen. And you groan. You sigh with expectation. Oh, the glory that awaits. Resurrection bodies. Celebration. Feasting. Beauty. Unbelievable. Don't, don't live like Louis XIV. Live with eternity in view. Let's pray. So Lord, uh, thank you for today and thank you for the hope of heaven. And Lord, we just, those of us who have trusted you, we just groan. We sigh. Not not out of despair, but we because, Lord, there's so often that you're finishing a meal with some friends and you have this thought, Lord, I do, maybe this, I wish this to go on for a few more hours, but a great day is coming when it's going to go on for a long time. Or you see the beauty of the Tetons or the beauty of the beach and you just say, wow, and yet the Tetons are groaning. The Himalayas and the Alps are groaning with expectation. Or you see a beautiful person who's just attractive, and you think, man, that's beautiful, but think of a resurrection body. Lord, that's glorious. And I pray that, that we would be people who rely not on ourselves, but on the Lord. I pray we'd find ourselves in communities of prayer and encouragement, and I pray that because of those things, we would fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So give grace to us, O oh Lord, I pray. Build your church. Make us heavenly minded in Jesus' name. Amen.